0: Okay, we're back. That's the first time I've ever had Streamlabs just crash on me, but that's what's happened. Let's uh, check in with you.
1: Reggie Gervais is one of the few comedians who's actually still funny, and he's at his funniest when he's mocking Hollywood. He's done it a lot. He just did it again.
2: If scientists came to me and went, Rick, we've sorted it, you'd have to go back in a time machine, just press this button, right? It kills Hitler, before the Holocaust, before the war, right? Um, The present is exactly the same, except it makes you a bit more ginger. I'd go, no. (laughs) Why should I suffer? (laughs) But when you see one of those fluff pieces, whenever they ask that question, one of those silly questionnaires that celebrities do, always um, what's the first thing you do? You have a time machine. They all say, oh, I go back and kill Hitler. Really? You'd go back and buy Microsoft shares, you f- liar, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's true,
1: by the way, they would buy Microsoft shares. And then he made fun of the one group you're not allowed to make fun of, and that would be trans activists.
2: I love the, the new women. I know the new women. They're great, aren't they? The, you know the new ones we've been seeing lately? The, the ones with beards and <laughs> They're as good as... They're as good as gold. I love them. <laughs> now it's the old-fashioned... And now the old-fashioned, they're like, oh, they want to use our toilets. Why shouldn't they use your toilets? For ladies. They are ladies. Look at their pronouns. <laughs> what about this person that isn't a lady? Well, his penis. <laughs> Her penis, you fing bigot. What if he rapes me? What if she rapes you?
1: So the audience laugh. Most people would laugh. You're allowed to laugh. Glad doesn't laugh. Their job is not to laugh at all. They sent a statement out condemning the bit. It's full of, quote, graphic, dangerous, anti-trans rants masquerading as jokes. Well, speaking of graphic and dangerous, Chadwick Moore is the editor-in-chief of Outspoken. He joins us tonight (laughs) for a graphic and dangerous response to this. (laughs) How How is it dangerous? Do you have any idea, Chadwick?
3: Well, I'll tell you, I watched this special, and it really made me nostalgic for a time when men were men, women were women, and comedians were funny. And it was really funny, much like Dave Chappelle's specials that they lost their minds over. And uh, Dave Chappelle's special, the specials were also quite heartfelt, if you watch the whole thing and weren't just listening to the white liberal media outrage machine that was trying to cancel a black national treasure. Uh, But uh, the dangerous rhetoric, it's really interesting because these groups, another thing too, is he makes just as many jokes about Christians and the faithful in that comedy uh, sketch. I don't see the same outrage and calls for censorship from groups that maybe represent their interests, which tells you everything you need to know about who the real Puritans and authoritarians are in uh, today's society. Wouldn't
1: it be If you were in charge of PR for the trans activist community, wouldn't it be wiser just to kind of let it go and let people laugh?
3: Well, this is another thing, too, is when you pretend to take all the weight of a community onto you and you pretend that they're so fragile, (laughs) they live on the knife edge of breaking down every two seconds, what you're actually doing is stripping those people of their dignity and you're stripping them of their humanity and their ability to be happy and to survive in the world. And, you know, if you're a little weird, if you're a little abnormal... It's okay to laugh at yourself and you should laugh at yourself. And if you are able to laugh at yourself on occasion, I guarantee you, you're going to be happier, more productive and better suited to survive in the world because the world is going to change for you. No matter how much you bully people, censor people and try to cancel people, it's not going to make them.
0: Okay, so I was listening to a pretty good uh, podcast recently. It's called All in the Mind. It's from the ABC, the national broadcaster in Australia. So it's about what goes on in our brains. And here's an episode on how dopamine drives our addictions. She was
4: willing to concede that she had become addicted to cannabis. When she came back a month later, she was shocked. At how much better she felt, less anxious than she had felt, not just you know in months but actually in years. Then I asked her if she wanted to continue to abstain for another month or if she wanted to go back to using cannabis, and she said she wanted to go back to using cannabis, but she wanted to use differently. She wanted to use less. And so then what we do is we talked about in very specific terms what would that look like, how many days of the week, which days of the week, and then she went back out that next month and you know tried it out, and she was able to moderate her use um, with a lot of vigilance around how that was going to look, and also keeping very close records
5: of how much she was using.
6: You're listening to All In The Mind, I'm Sana Dar. Today, how dopamine drives us and our addictions. Dr. Anna Lemke is a psychiatrist and author of the book, Dopamine Nation. And there's a study she writes about that tried to uncover how people with addictions think about the future. The researchers in the study asked two groups of people to complete a story that began with the line, after awakening, Bill began to think about his future. In general, he expected to dot, dot, dot. One of the groups was addicted to opioids. The other was healthy. Their answers were wildly different.
4: People who were in, in an addiction usually talked about a future that lasted about nine days, whereas a healthy comparison group not engaging in addictive behavior uh, talked about a future that was four to 10 years. Wow. So just fascinating that, you know, these temporal horizons, our, our sense of our future self really shrinks when we're, when we're actively engaging in compulsive overconsumption.
6: Yeah. And why is that significant in terms of how we think about how to treat addiction then? Well, it's significant because we have to
4: remember that when people are in their addiction, they're not really thinking long-term. It's almost Mm -hmm. impossible for them to conceptualize long-term consequences. And they also do not fully appreciate uh, the impact of uh, their substance use on their lives because they're just sort of in the here and now. They're in survival mode. They've essentially mistaken their drug choice. for
0: That's such a great point. When people are in their addictions, they're just in the here and now. They're not able to project into the future. So for, wow, for my first 10 years in Los Angeles, 10 years plus, I would keep saying in, uh, in, in therapy, I'm just in, su- I'm in survival mode, because when I was in survival mode, that would allow me to get away with anything. I just felt until, really probably until 2016. So my first 22 years in in Los Angeles, but first, particularly the first 15, just very much felt like I was just in survival mode, and I mean, part of it may have been in, being in the grip of love and sex and and porn addiction, attention addiction things like that, but that just so resonates with me. When, when you've got an addiction operating in your life, you're just in survival mode and you're not able to plan for the future. Or food, clothing,
4: and shelter. Um, mm-hmm. And that's why that period of abstinence, whether it happens in a rehab or people can do it you know, outside of a rehab environment, is really fundamental to restoring baseline homeostasis so people can re-engage their prefrontal cortex and really consider you know, how they want to live their lives. Have the kinds
6: of addictions you're seeing in patients changed much over time?
4: Most of our patients have addictions to legal substances, namely alcohol nicotine products, and cannabis. But starting around 2010, uh, we began seeing more and more patients coming in with what we call process addictions. This is addictions to behaviors like gambling, video games, pornography, shopping.
0: So this is a professor from Stanford University who wrote a book on dopamine addiction.
4: Um, And the smartphone, the advent of the smartphone, really tipped many people over the edge where they had been using those those kinds of behaviors online in moderation. But once they got 24-7 portable access to their smartphones, they were no longer able uh, to manage their consumption.
6: What are some of the more I don't know if odder is quite the word, it feels a bit judgmental, but um, more surprising addictions perhaps that you've come across in your time?
4: I think the most surprising thing in the last 10 years has been the extent to which people can get addicted to online behaviors, whether it's a video game or TikTok or YouTube or online news or pornography online or shopping online. The extent to which these kinds of online behaviors can truly be devastating and debilitating has really been a wake-up call.
6: And is the process going on in the brain essentially the same for all these different types of addictions or is it, is it different?
4: I think it's basically the same process. It's the same uh, natural history of disease where people start out using to have fun or solve a problem. Then they're using daily. Then they need more potent forms to get the same effect.
0: This is gold, all right? People don't start using alcohol to add to their problems. They start using alcohol to take care of their problems. People don't start using porn to add to their problems. They use it to forget about their problems. People don't start masturbating wildly in an out-of-control fashion to add to their problems. They they do it to alleviate stress and to feel better about themselves and to you know deal with pain and anxiety. Then
4: they're starting to have consequences, and then they uh, want to stop and find that even when they want to stop, they're unable to. And that's true whether it's a drug
6: or whether it's a behavior. I want to talk in more detail about how people manage their addictions. You mentioned self-binding strategies. Can you talk about what that is and, and what it involves? Self-binding is both
4: literal and metacognitive barriers. Uh, that we put between ourselves and our drug of choice that allows us to press the pause button between desire and consumption.
0: Okay, how dopamine drives our addictions. Terrific, all in the mind podcast from the ABC in Australia. All right, this is Greg Johnson in conversation.
7: Codes, things that you had to follow if you were going to be at our event. And that made a really, really big difference because we were really intent on ensuring that... If people
0: Greg talking to Mark were going to be
7: coming to PA events, they yeah. weren't going to be that guy and they weren't going to be driving away the normal people who were starting to wake up to the racial realities around them and wanting to get involved with a radical racial nationalist movement. And I think for a long time, good people have had that gut feeling of like, Mwah. This guy shouldn't really be here. This guy's a bit of a weirdo. He's going to put everyone off. But in the past, our numbers were often low. You didn't want to turn away somebody who other people would say, well, he's a, he, I know he's a bit weird, but he's a genuine guy. He really does believe in the cause. But unfortunately, I think what ends up happening is you get this guy involved. And when you do get him involved, he causes, you know, like you say, He is one extra person at the table and you don't want one less at the table, but he's actually the guy that stops three, four, five, six other people from sitting down at the table. So overall, he's a net negative. And I think...
0: Right. So the main thing that has hindered ethnic nationalist movements in the United States in particular, and also elsewhere in the Anglo world, is the very low quality of the people attracted to them. These marginalized movements have become dominated by marginalized people that there are a 1,000 high school dropouts for every dentist who's on board.
7: One of the things that we need to do if we grow as a movement is to have these kind of standards, to have codes of conduct, to have uh, lists of what you can and can't do at our events so that when people do come to these events for the first time, It's a welcoming event. They're meeting other good people. Everyone's sober. Everyone's being polite. Everyone's treating everyone else with respect because a community needs to be welcoming and respectful if it's ever going to attract new people and blossom.
8: Yeah, I agree. Uh, There's somebody in Odyssey chat. And folks, I very much appreciate our friends at Odyssey. And I am watching you. Uh, I'm, I'm changing my habits. I used to ignore Odyssey. But now we have 75 people over at Odyssey. Uh, somebody is saying, um, that I'm talking about Ethan Ralph. No, I'm not talking about Ethan Ralph. Um, and in fact, uh, Ethan Ralph as a media figure, I think is extremely valuable because he's sort of above the factions. Uh, he's a, he's a real entrepreneur and empresario. Uh, I've interviewed him at countercurrents radio. Um, he, he might not be the sort of person that I want, uh, uh, to like do business with or something? I don't know. Uh, I just don't know. I mean, he's, there are lots of people, uh, who are really exercised about Ethan Ralph. Um, but there's a difference between a membership organization and the, the network of different organizations and individuals out there. And the the way I want to put it is that, um, you, you You should be selective in your membership organizations, uh but you should realize that you can't purge somebody from the internet you can't You can't send a, a an agent with an ice pick to get rid of your enemies uh It just doesn't work that way uh and so to to have the idea that you can be the gatekeeper for the whole movement that's illusory you can't purge people from the movement. you can keep people out of your own little manicured garden. Uh, whether it's your web platform, your podcast, or your uh, membership group, your activist group. Uh, and there are people out there who are a little rough around the edges. Uh, they might not be clubbable uh, in, in in the sense of, you know, fitting in with groups. They might be clubbable like baby seals are clubbable, but they're not clubbable in the clubbish sense, right? But they're very valuable and, and they can create their own platforms and do their own things. And so... Uh, no I'm not talking about Ethan Ralph and even if I were talking about Ethan Ralph Ethan Ralph has found a niche where he's actually doing really really positive things so I just wanted to um, mention that because it's not true yeah I I really like Ethan Ralph and I'll, I'll say this yeah I do
7: too Ethan Ralph's uh position is that of an entertainer, that of a chat show host. He's not a guy who's going to be coming to UK meetings and starting to...
0: Okay, here's uh, Caleb Malpin going off on uh, Richard Spencer. And,
9: I mean, you know, I, I feel good right now. I'll just be honest with you. As scary as world events are, we don't know how these things will develop. I'm not thrilled about, you know, the possible fallout. We all know we're worried about the danger of a new world war. But right now, I am in a good place. I'll just be honest with you. I am in a good place because it feels good. It feels good to see the forces of righteousness in the world score a few blows for once. I I have my whole life seen the bad guys winning, okay? I know it sounds like it's a movie. It's not a movie. This is people's lives, okay? So we need to be more realistic about these things. My whole life, I have seen Satan win. I have seen the forces of evil score victories, right? When I was in high school, uh, you know, the USA invaded Iraq, invaded Iraq. And they said Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, and they didn't. They said Iraq was responsible for 9-11, which was absolutely ridiculous. You know, Osama bin Laden was a wealthy Saudi, uh, and he was a Wahhabi, and Saddam Hussein was a Ba'athist Arab socialist. But all the people who buy into mainstream media, the same kind of people that now have Ukrainian flags on their pages, they all said, Oh yeah, Iraq's invading invading Iraq is a, a terrorist country, and they went along with it and they supported it, and I didn't support it, and I questioned it, and I got called a terrorist and I got called a traitor and I got called, accused of disrespecting the country, and I got called to the principal's office and told that I was, you know, I shouldn't shouldn't question the war because military families don't like hearing that. And and you know, my whole life I've seen this, right? And on top of that, we've seen it on the economic front, right? We have seen living standards go down. Uh, we've seen good-paying jobs disappear. Uh, you go back to my hometown in Ohio right now, it, it's abysmal, right? When I was a kid in the 90s, it was, you know, it, the economy was still good. I mean, it wasn't the richest part of the United States. It's a little tiny town, manufacturing town. But it was much better than it is now. And I hear about, you know, kids in my high school class who died of opioids. Then I hear about uh, all the evil things that are happening and, and just, you know, the lack of economic opportunity of, of oppressed and marginal communities, LGBT rights, trans rights. Come on, man. You know, you know I don't want to violate anyone's human rights. You know I want civil liberties. But I also want a strong government that will get shit done. All right. And... Last one. Uh, the leader of the alt-right movement, Richard Spencer, has been critiquing your pro-Russia takes on Twitter. Yeah, I noticed. Uh, Richard Spencer is a doofus. Okay, first of all, Richard Spencer. This is this is what I gotta say about Richard Spencer. Right. First of all, I mean he's a disgusting racist. Right. He advocates white supremacy. He, he's a white supremacist. Right. I mean that's what he is. He is. I'm not exaggerating. That's an epithet. Everyone's a Nazi now. Everyone's a white supremacist. No, this guy actually is a Nazi. This guy actually is a white supremacist. He organized the Charlottesville rallies. He's that. So he's disgusting. Number one. Um, you know, he's like you know he's like our generation's David Duke. I think he's like maybe five, ten years older than I am. And he's like, our generation's David Duke. He's a white supremacist. I have no intention of debating him because I've watched his debates and I know how they go. I will debate other white supremacists, but I don't want to debate him because I know what he cares about and what I care about are very different. I mean, I would want to argue with with like an anti-communist, but Spencer will pretend to agree with me and be like, if you're a real communist, you should support white separatism. That's how he operates and I don't want to engage that conversation. Um, But the thing about Spencer, that just tells you everything about Spencer, right? I mean, in addition to him being being awful, right? The way he talks, right? He has a normal voice on his podcast. But when he's giving a speech, he talks like this. Yes, I am fighting for the white race. Yes, I
7: think the Holocaust didn't happen.
9: Yes, I'm Richard Spencer. I'm trying to scare you. I was a goth in high school. Like, the guy wants to be a fucking Hollywood villain. I mean, it's a joke. You cannot take him seriously. Look at any speech by Richard Spencer. He's like,
7: yes, I talk like this. Yes, I'm fighting for white
9: people. No, it's not the Hitler salute. I'm just, you know, putting my hand out straight. What? I, how do, How could I know the Holy Ghost? It's the, he is unbelievable, right? I mean, it's like it is the most pathetic, you know, edge lord. I'm trying to be everyone's scary nightmare white supremacist. It's like ridiculous, right? He's from an ultra-rich, wealthy family. He's some rich kid who you know, this is his hobby. This is his thing he wants to do is he wants to be like a famous neo-Nazi. Uh, and he does it, right? Um, and he had a wife who was, you know, from, uh, you know, from what, Eastern Europe or Central Asia or something like that. And they divorced and he's mad about that. And he, after Charlottesville, they sued his pants off and he has no money anymore. And he's basically destitute and he's stripped down to nothing. And he's trying to rebuild his Twitter. And he knows that a lot of people in the alt-right community, unfortunately, because, you know, and this has always been a factor. This has always been a factor, right, is that unfortunately among like straight up Nazis, not racist not white like straight up hitler people there's always been this weird current of people that like it's, and it's a minority it's not the majority by any means there's always been a minority of people like you know william luther pierce and francis parker yaki uh, there's always been this weird layer of nazis uh who who because they are so against the world and because they are so in love with hitler that they start to take anti-imperialist positions it's very rare but it happens you get nazis who praise china you get nazis who praise north korea and you there's a there's a weird layer of nazis who...
0: okay so i've heard caleb malpin on countless occasions. I've never been edified. I've never heard anything that I haven't heard anywhere else. And so he was very passionate in his denunciation of Richard Spencer there, but there was no substance to it. I'm not, you know, smarter because I listened to Caleb Malpert. Now, here is someone who consistently, no, let's uh, get uh, young, young Kenneth Brown.
10: Oh, this is a reason you should be right-wingist because George Carlin would be a Republican. So see, now we're cool. Now we're like, now we're the counterculture. Which is an admission of defeat, which is an admission that you, you've you lost, that you continue to lose ground so much so that liberal figures of the past have now become nominally right-wing. That is a huge measure of failure, but they embrace it as something to be proud of and to celebrate, which goes along with this logic of they've taken on the underdog, right? They've taken on the underdog role. And they've said, yeah, it's cool It's cool to be a loser. That's what the right wing has become. It's cool to be an incel. It's cool to be a loser. It's cool to be socially awkward. It's cool to be socially inept. It's cool to be incapable of talking to women. It's cool to hate women. It's cool to, all these things, these are all like cool things that they embrace now. It's cool to be a sociopath. It's cool to be, it's cool to be a nerd. It's cool to be all of these things. It's cool to be the guy at the party who's like in the corner, that meme of the guy at the party. And he's like, oh, my feet hurt. I don't want to talk to anyone. That's like a cool meme. The donut model, right, Contrast on the one hand this idea of complete collapse, and on the other hand, everything's just...
0: So Kenneth Brown has a lot of sharp, funny critiques of uh, the dissident right, but he really just wants to talk about metaphysics. But if he talks about what he wants to talk about, he won't have any audience. So I, I understand that. I, I'm kind of torn between talking about events of the day, talking about deeper philosophical and religious issues. So let's go to the videotape here. Let's get some more Mark Shapiro. In, um, in um, Zizan, his synagogue there. And he says as follows, why create a
11: reform sin- service? He says, quote, who would dare deny that our service is sickly because of many useless things? That is, you're saying all this stuff in the... Right,
0: there's just so much accretion uh, of prayers in, in Judaism. Over thousands of years, the prayer service just gets you know, heavier and heavier, longer and longer. So this is David Friedlander, I believe, or is it Israel Jacobson? Anyway, both of them are radical reform rabbis in 19th century Germany.
11: Prayers that are, are useless. I don't know what he considers useless and so what's not. Uh, uh, I'm not sure, but uh, I think for him, maybe only Shema and uh, a reform version of Shema and would be uh, valuable. I don't know. And then he goes on. This has degenerated into a thoughtless recitation of prayers and formulae that it kills devotion more than it encourages it, and that it limits our religious principles to that fund of knowledge, which for centuries has remained in our treasure house without ink.
0: So this is uh, fairly accurate that uh, you don't don't tend to see Jews being deeply moved by davening. On the other hand, it does have some effect on you and it socializes you to being with other Jews and and working within community. So it's a way that you can meet with people if you, you're leaving town. You can go to a minion and, and try to sell your car, or you know get a ride or get some help on a project. You get to see your friends, but the actual prayer does not tend to be terribly fervent in most synagogues. Priest without a nobleman. So he says it kills devotion. It's a thoughtless recitation of prayers and formulate. Now, this is something, obviously, the Orthodox
11: struggle with as well. No one can deny that people, uh, you know, as I said, it's a routinization. So the Orthodox, they'll have to do their own way of trying to make it. The, we, we don't cut things out unless they're like matters that are not really essential to the davening.
0: Uh. Well, you get a lot more talking in Orthodox synagogues compared to non-Orthodox synagogues. So it's not so much that the Orthodox are cutting things out, but the Orthodox Jews are frequently talking. They're wandering around outside. They're you know going to the back. They are going to a kiddish club. Like they're they're having food and drink out outside, they're they're learning to pace themselves.
11: But does. The- the thing with the reformers is they often had a good diagnosis of what was going on their, their solutions were also were the problems but of course there's a diagnosis that uh, that the people find certain aspects of the service long and boring and we've made changes when you could i've said it numerous times just look at the tissue above that you have today and compare that to when we were growing up where i would sit and show for as a youngster hours and hours listening to keynotes what's a guy what's a 12 or 13 year old supposed to do when you can't understand these keynotes and they just read them again and again so
0: keynotes are all these marble uh, poems about jewish suffering and tisha is is a holiday that commemorates jewish suffering it's a fast day in the middle of summer so now we've made changes so but that's uh you know there's a lot of principles as well but uh, the reformers are not
11: so concerned about that uh and then he says uh that these prayers have remained in our treasure houses without increase or ennoblement that is we have to change the prayers because uh, we can't recite prayers the same way they've been recited for a thousand years two thousand years uh we need some changes now i just want to take back a bit what i said that in terms of uh you know make it seem it's only the reformers because there's a video of an interview, there's a guy, he deals with high school kids, I can find him, I forget his name, and he interviews a Schechter, and he says that in a lot of our high schools, the kids come in and they don't want to do you know, they don't come from such religious homes, so they're teenagers, teenagers, you know, they're, they're not so into it often, so if Schechter says to him, so then they don't have to daven all this. And i don't know if the person was a little surprised he says, so what should they do shakta says he says okay he says cut out this because i think he says do and then go to astray and then i think he says and then go to the earth he cuts out so it's like a 15 minute or even less a 10 minute of and this is not some reformer this is what shakta saying for these kids it's better to say a few things with kavana than to have them sit there the whole time so they're born out of their mind so by the time they get their shema, they're still thinking of uh, the sports game from the night before that they've been thinking for the last 10 minutes so so this is
0: okay so rav shakta he's the number one modern orthodox uh, post in the united states
5: and we
11: wouldn't feel the need to say that everything we do in here is in accord with uh, pure religion with general morality that we assume that everyone knows that synagogues were interested in morality but you see that in the early part of the 19th century he needs to stress that we're not different than you we too are moral and we're not this synagogue unlike those other.
0: right so when a, an in group is insecure they want to emphasize to the out group how similar they are and how what's going on with the in group is is rational it's in accord with the principles of, of true religion now, Mormons, generally speaking, don't feel insecure in in America. So same with Orthodox Jews and, and Seventh-day Adventists. So they're much more at ease with emphasizing their distinctiveness. But when outsiders see it portrayed in things like this TV drama Under the Banner of Heaven or the book on which Under the Banner of Heaven is based, then this is another reason why religion looks unappetizing to most people who are not raised with it and why religion's on a downward trajectory in the West. Because think about when do you see religion in the news? It's uh, frequently something creepy.
11: Synagogues is a synagogue where uh, a Christian can come and feel brotherhood with the Jews because we all uh, are worshiping the one true God. You won't find in this synagogue any of that orthodox mumbo-jumbo and superstition. I do want to add, however, that many people are probably thinking when you hear this, that's so reformed that will be concerned with the volume. always what the volume have to say. And we're going to modify our service and we're going to change our practices. Right.
0: So it's the very same thing that uh, we heard in those excerpts from Under the Banner of Heaven, right? Where these fire-breathing Mormons are emphasizing, we don't need to be concerned with man's law. We don't need to be concerned with the United States government. We don't need to be concerned with what outsiders think. We need to practice the principle of multiple wives.
11: Because of the Guardian. And I have to say that uh, there's a lot of truth to that feeling, but it's not complete without pointing out that we have plenty of examples where Orthodox or Torah leaders I don't want to use the word orthodoxy. I'm speaking about, let's say, in medieval times, they're not orthodox. There's not such thing as orthodoxy yet. We haven't even got to orthodoxy. Maybe with the Kassam Sofer, we'll start seeing orthodoxy, right? We just have Torah Judaism and Reform Judaism, um, traditional Torah Judaism and, and Reformed Judaism, because we have a number of examples. I'll just give you some of them now, where post king Torah leaders have said that because of how things look to the Goyim, we should not do it. And uh, let me give you a few examples. Uh, I should have asked Robert to see me about this uh, a couple
0: of weeks ago. So again, if you're a minority group and you feel confident, you're not worried about how you come across to the majority. If you're a minority group and you feel insecure and anxious, then you're very concerned about what outsiders think. So you as an individual may be filled with confidence, but situation may change. You may, well, lose your confidence. You become anxious and while for... For weeks, months, years, you didn't give a damn what other people thought. Suddenly, you realize your vulnerability, and you start caring very intensely. So, to have no concern for how outsiders view what you're saying and doing, or have no concern about what outsiders view your in-group is saying or doing, is not generally an adaptive response. You want to both be able to participate in the gl- dance and at the same time spend some time trying to see things from the outsider's point of view.
11: So, the Chief Rabbi of Rome, uh, in Rome. Uh, before the mid 18th 19th century, one of the practices they used to do. So,
5: he like also wanted system. to be given
11: the four mitot and uh, to be dragged. You know, I have to look in the chuba. I, I, as I remember, you drag a coffin. You're not dragged by yourself. <laughs> I'm gonna look though because I'm thinking of it. That would be even worse if you actually dragged the body. But I, uh, I'm pretty certain that uh, that's my recollection. Uh, that it's they drag the coffin, not the, not the body, because uh, um, they do bury coffins in Rome. Uh, uh, now, this is again going to be a problem. You're going to drag him and drag him into through the through cemetery, which goes to the non Jewish neighborhoods. And uh, Rabbi Shmuel Chazan says, when we did it with the big rabbis, it was a very uncommon thing. But now, well, uh, you have simple people want to do this. And that's going to create a mockery for Judaism. We now have good relations with the Christians. Can you imagine what that's going to do when they see us dragging uh, you know, dead people through the streets? It's going to make us, he says, seem like barbarians in their eyes. And therefore, he abolishes it. Is this a valid concern? Are we supposed to alter our practices because of the non-Jews? We don't stop doing mitzvah because of the non-Jews, but there are other sources I found similarly.
0: So everything takes place within a particular situation. So in certain situations, restrictions on free speech would be considered unthinkable. In other situations, not having massive restrictions on free speech or freedom of assembly. Think about how all our freedoms were taken for granted, such as being able to travel, being able to go to church or to synagogue, to you know, go to go to work. All those freedoms got taken away under COVID restrictions. So everything situational, including how much we pay attention to what our groups think of us.
11: So, for instance, the Rashbash. The Rashbash is Shlomo Ben Shimon Duran, 15th century, 15th century uh, Algeria. He responds to a community where the minhag was when you went into the show you took off your shoes. We know that's what they did in outside the cities, for example, in the villages, they did that. Did they get this from the Muslims, that this was a sign of respect? Um, It could be. I can tell you that right now in Germany, and by the way, I'm going. I'm going back to Jerba the week, immune session, the week after Shavuos. I got to get our uh, our trip. But uh, God willing, one day we'll go. But I got to plan it. I was going to announce to everyone one day that we're the first uh, kosher tour from America ever going to Jerba. But lo and behold, my my friend there, my contact, told me I spoke to him last week. The group just left. A group of Hasidim, 17 Hasidim, showed up in Tunisia last week, and uh, they're the first kosher tour, and in, <laughs> in their whole garb and everything, the, the Hasidim there. Uh, so, uh, but uh, I can tell you that in every single show in Jerba, when you go up to the Aron Kodesh, and I, I had the gall of taking out the Torah one, but you have to take your shoes off. And in the famous show in Jerba. The, show, the, the, the big one there everyone takes their shoes off before you go win the show so you're all t-
0: and a uh, question in the chat which youtuber on the distant right pitches to the highest iq audience uh I- i'd say i do all right this show is pitched at about the 120 iq audience i'm not aware of anyone else doing that
11: Dolphining in the show it doesn't matter and when you come as a tourist you have to take your shoes off too so the whole show for now for thousands of years you've been taking your shoes off there so it is a, it's not a um I think it's Mikhayl uh, Kanievsky, actually, or the word. No, it's Mikhayl He was asked about the practice of taking your shoes off, and he says it's. So
0: yeah, my modus operandi is, at my best, I take, I take the the best, uh, the latest and greatest academic research and try to apply it to what's going on in the world around us. So that's that's obviously going to be a high IQ, very discriminating audience. is going to be interested in that.
11: So uh, like from the Goyun but it's not. They, we have it in Morocco. We know that they used to do it. Well, maybe originally it's from Begallian, but I mean, it's been a Jewish practice for so long that it's a valid Jewish practice.
0: So-, so pretty much every other YouTube dissident or dissident that I'm aware of is constantly flattering their audience. Like you really understand, you know, we've got to stand up for our freedoms or you know, some other uh, moronic you know, in-group pitch. We're all in it together. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to stand here and to stream and be passionately opposed by every single person in the chat. And it does take a toll. It's not easy to go up and disagree with everyone in your group. I I don't enjoy arguing with every member of my in-group or every member of my channel or friends who who supported the show for many years, but that's my style. Uh, Maybe I've just inherited it from my father. I'm more interested in what I think is true than in the approval of other people.
11: Uh, but he was asked about this, the Rashbash. Uh, now, there was a shul where some people insisted on taking your shoes off, and other people said, no, you can't take your shoes off because uh, this is, again, you're, you're imitating uh, the Goyun. And what does the Rashbash say? And this is, uh, he's, there's a few different brands. It's Hushbates, the Rashbash. But he's a major, major post scheme.
0: So this is true for all in-groups. If you're very comfortable, very confident in your in-group, then imitating the ways of the out-groups is, generally speaking, looked down upon. But if times have changed and you have reason to be anxious and insecure about how the outgroups look at you, then you're going to have to pay the outgroup opinion much greater mind.
11: He says you should take off your shoes. And he says precisely by taking off your shoes, you'll gain respect by the non-Jews. Because for the Muslims, the idea of going to your house of worship and not taking off your shoes was a sign of disrespect. So it's not like taking off your shoes is against Allah. There's good reasons to take off your shoes.
0: Right. So generally speaking, Jews don't remove their shoes when they go to synagogue and Christians don't, generally speaking, remove their shoes when they go to church. But in some contexts, in some times and places, that might be the most advantageous thing to do
11: could argue and therefore now you can never imagine a a christian christian man saying this take off your shoes they would see this as completely disrespectful take off your shoes take off your shoes when you go to shulah that's 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 a height of disrespect Uh, but in the muslim world on the contrary you have to have a good reason not to take off your shoes because in that world it was thought to be respectful to take your shoes off uh you know that the rambam says that uh, before davening you're supposed to wash your feet And uh, the on
0: the spot there says, what's going on here? Would you wash your feet? So it's a a very different... So many of the great Jewish rabbis were profoundly influenced by the Muslims around them. They were profoundly influenced by the writings of Muslims around them. Other great rabbis were profoundly influenced by the Christian priests and ministers around them. Uh, Reform Judaism reformed in a way to be increasingly imitative of what was going on in Protestant churches at the time. Uh, Judaism took a great deal from paganism, and then turned it in in a new direction. So religions, and social, cultural, political movements don't just emerge like a, a bolt of lightning. They always come from something else, and they never they never see themselves as the new religion. They always say, "Oh, we're just fulfilling uh, the old religion, which which kind of lost its way." So this is the way of the world: we take existing material and we shape it in our own direction so here i am playing dr mark shapiro who's doing this long series on the rise of reform and the rabbinic response and i'm applying it to the news i'm applying it to in-group out-group relations generally whether it's uh, racial ethnic uh, political so i'm taking the pre-existing material and i'm giving it a 40 spin
11: understanding the rumbum is a famous example take a look in the number, uh, uh, the Blau edition, number 258. That's the Chuva where he deals with the practice of no chazar sashas. Uh, and this continues in certain Spanish and Portuguese. Uh, uh, they don't do this on Shabbos and Musaf. Uh, it, it, you read it together, that is, you started the Shman and Musaf. Only Musaf, as I recall, they do this out loud. And then you get the Kedusha, and then everyone continue on your own. Uh, what about the Hecha Kedusha? Yeshivas do it sometimes. This, is, this was standard in Morocco. Uh, today, uh, it's not so common, although uh, often on trips and things, you do it uh, in the interest of time. But uh, the Rambam defended this practice. And uh, a lot of people know why he defended. He says there's a lot of uh, talking. He doesn't just say they're ta- he's talking, by the way. He also says, uh, uh, he says, uh, the Jews are spitting also. You know, they're just acting, uh, you know, they're, they're showing their disrespect. Uh, uh, but then he says, uh, so th- that's what people off- often uh, quote. But he says as follows. He says, by getting rid of the Hazar shots, where the Jews spit and talk and all that, he says, Yusachil Hashem, a Benagoyim. He says that uh, this friend. creates a chel Hashem. So the Jews not behaving
0: properly in Shul, creates a hill hashem for the Goyim, and therefore the Rambam says that's a good reason. I- so if I were to take you to synagogue, I, we, we'd be sitting around schmoozing, chatting, eating, drinking for a, for an hour, and you'd ask me, when do services begin? And they've been going on the whole time. So synagogues tend to be much less reverent places than churches. Orthodox synagogues in particular tend to be much less reverent than non-Orthodox synagogues because and Orthodox synagogues, people are going you know, pretty much every day, so there's a familiarity with the place, and it's much harder to be reverent when you're showing up every day.
11: I don't know if it was just the Jews talking and spitting, if that would have been a reason enough to abolish it uh, without the uh, Hil Hashem. And, and this tshuva is cited by the Radbaz in uh, Volume 4, Number 4. So Hilul
0: Hashem means desecration of God's name. So I really want to get the most out of my crystal light orange. And so I'm trying to think, like, which would be the best, best, Aerator to to buy for my Crystal Light Classic Orange. Right, a decanter, porous spout set with filters of purified, stand, travel, bag, diffuser, air, aerating. I need to get an aerator for my Crystal Light, and then what would be the right decanter to really enjoy refreshing? Hmm. Hmm. So tangy and zesty and citrusy. And then uh, that, that crystal light classic orange leaves you with that that aftertaste of clove. I'm just looking at the right decanter here to try to get all that I can out of my crystal light. All right. Crystal light nationalism, guys. It, it contains all the good parts of nationalism without any of the icky parts. Five.
11: He cites the Rambam, and he summarizes it as follows, that uh, um, why is it such a big deal? He says, The Rada says that precisely because in the Muslim world, they're very mocked. They don't talk during davening, and they don't do any of these other things. So
0: therefore, that's the reason why the Rambam felt that you have to get... So davening is the word that Jews use for prayer. But prayer connotes something much more reverent. Dovening is something you do with your whole body. You sway, you gesticulate, you you really get into it. So you can generally gauge how intensely someone feels about Judaism, how passionate they are about their religion, where they are in their religiosity, by how much they sway when they're they're praying. So someone who really sways around and gesticulates, are generally the more religious, those who sway a little bit are just mildly religious, and those who stand there, Lucky, really bored, tend to be the least religious.
11: It's important to get rid of the chazarus hashats. Chazarus This is a, so,
0: r- is a repetition of the main Jewish prayer, the Amidah.
11: Religious thing. This is part of our uh, religious ritual. So you see that how the non-Jews thought about us, uh, it's going to make a disgrace in front of the non-Jews. That's reason enough to stop it. I'll give you two more examples of this. The Mugin Avraham says that technically, if we want to hire, let's say I want to build a shul. So we hire the non-Jews to build it. We don't tell them when to build it. We don't give them $100,000 to uh, build the shul. They can do it when they want. They want to build it on Shabbos, on Yom Kippur. They can do that. Luckily, there's no problem with that. Uh,
0: there's no sugar in crystal Light classic orange. It's sugar-free. It's like five five calories a glass of this refreshing drink. It tastes like fresh squeezed orange juice.
11: However, the Muget Avraham says, since non-Jews do not allow work to take place at their churches on Sunday, it would be a disgrace if we Jews on our day of rest would allow workers to work, at it, uh, work on it. And the Chassam Sofer writes that this is a new idea, the Muget Avraham. It's his own idea, his own Kiddush. And yet the Chassam Sofer accepts it. He likes this. Uh, there were those who opposed uh, the, the the Avraham's view, the Lubki Dager, the father of the Chassam Sofer, but this became accepted. and I think it's been pretty much accepted by all postkim today. I don't think that today you could have. I can't imagine today if we're building a show that uh, on Shabbos or Yom Tov we could allow uh, people workers to be working on it. I, I don't think that would happen. And
0: this all goes back to the Avraham. Um, so I just uh, bought new, new uh, Sony wireless premium noise cancelling overhead headphones so i've always only used headphones wireless headphones that i spent about 50 bucks on but uh because i'm using them so much i figured you know let me lash out spent 350 dollars on these headphones and this is what a savage i am i really can't tell the difference in the sound quality between the 350 dollar uh, Sony WH1000XM4 wireless premium headphones and the $50 ones that I was using, the Corwin headphones. Now I use wired headphones when I'm live streaming because they tend to lose signal a lot less. So when I used wireless headphones, that occasionally they just lose signal, and it'd be awkward and embarrassing. But today my my Streamlabs crashed on me for the very first time. Uh, okay. Uh, actually,
11: today, non-Jews work on Sunday, so you can make the argument that it's not such a big deal anymore, but I, I don't think it would happen. I'll give you one final example, because uh, we have some Germans with us here. Rav David Hoffman, uh, I think it's uh, 2 or 4, 14, maybe 15, uh, in he was asked about smoking insurance.
0: So David Hoffman was one of the, of the greatest Orthodox rabbis in Germany in the 19th century. He, he was, in the early 20th century, he was a big opponent of the Bible critics. So, David Sv. Hoffman fought for the traditional notion that the Torah, the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, is a unitary work that's about 3,200 years old, while virtually all Bible critics would say it is a post-mosaic composite work with many different authors and editors, and it has an evolution of composition that lasts over centuries, only reaching final form about 2,500 years ago.
11: Let's say you come to show, and uh, can you smoke? Smoke during uh, during the weekday, obviously. Uh, and he says that uh, the non-Jews are careful not to smoke in the church. And therefore, uh, we can't uh, smoke in the show. I don't think he's referring to uh, during davening. I think he's referring
0: to just like, uh, you're in a show, you know, you're learning or you're just hanging out. But he says that Christians will never... So there's a big movement in, in Judaism to try to stop the talking and uh, synagogues all over the world try to stop the talking. And it doesn't work. Right, The only time you go to a synagogue where people aren't talking is when it's a Baal Shuva synagogue, meaning that people who've only become Orthodox in, in adulthood fairly recently and they're, they're still burning with fervor. Right, So like an Asher Torah, that's a Baal Shuva synagogue. But you go to any synagogue where people were raised Orthodox, then it's loud and chatty the whole time. Because synagogue, the Hebrew word for synagogue, Beit Knesset, doesn't mean a house of prayer. That would be Beit Tefillah. A Beit Knesset means meeting place. That's what the primary purpose and meaning of a synagogue is. It is a meeting place, right? It's very few Jews go to synagogue to talk to God, right? Jews go to synagogue to talk to fellow Jews. Now, that you have obligations to talk to God with, with your prayers three times a day greatly assists and encourages, incentivizes people to show up to synagogue to talk to them on a regular basis and then. Because of that incentive, you got people there. And so if you show up, then you'll be able to talk to your, to your Jewish friends. You'll be able to make a business deal. You'll be able to sell a car. You might be able to find a shittuk, All right, You may be able to get a recommendation for a good plumber. All right, But life is meant to be lived with the people. The primary purpose for showing up in synagogue is to gather with people. But it helps that there's this overarching purpose of, of serving God. I mean, that makes the... The human connection that you get in synagogue so much more meaningful. I, sad to say, even when I'm I'm not davening as devotedly as I should, I feel a tremendous benefit that there are some people there who are davening properly. Right, I feel, I feel the vibration from their good and holy work, and it just elevates the atmosphere. So it's great. That there are some people who are davening, and. Other people can be kind of off to the side, having a great conversation. But the whole atmosphere is elevated by those holy ones who are speaking directly to God.
11: Smoke in the church, and therefore it's a chel Hashem, so we can't uh, do it. There's other examples. There's other examples. The Rabbi Breish, as I recall, says he can't bring a dog into a show, even like a seeing-eye dog, because the non-Jews don't bring it into church. Uh, he criticizes Ramosha Feinstein for permitting AID, artificial insemination, because he says that the Catholics um, uh, don't allow it. And therefore it's Ramosha says, in that case, Ramosha says, who cares what the Catholics say? If the Torah allows it, then we, and we have a good reason, we, we do it. So just remember this and keep it in mind that it's not totally a foreign concern that we have to be, you know, just have no interest what the non-Jews think about us. The Reformers, though, this becomes their major concern.
0: Right, so... The more assimilated the Jew, obviously, the more in common he's going to feel with the outgroup. In fact, he's not even going to view his fellow citizens as an outgroup. Now, the more intense the in-group commitment of the Jew or the Christian, right, then they're going to have much more of an in-group versus out-group uh, dynamic. Now, Anglo's are really the only people in the world of which I'm aware who believe in universal morality. So uh, we're seeing America. Where fewer and fewer people believe in universal morality, you're now seeing cops who will go in to rescue their own kids, but prevent other parents from, from doing the same because we've got this apparent diminishing of the Anglo ethic of universal morality.
11: The other figure we spoke about is David Friedlander. David Friedlander, um, here's the article from Encyclopedia, Encyclopedia.com, it's Encyclopedia Judaica. You can read a whole article about David Friedlander. Um, 1750, 1834, he fell in with Mendelssohn's uh, uh, circle. Um,
0: so Moses Mendelssohn was the father of the Haskalah, which was the Jewish Enlightenment. which really got going at the end of the 18th century. And then in the 19th century, Jews started getting more of a secular education and contributing more to secular life in Europe. They they broke out of the walls of the ghetto.
11: He was even more radical than Jacobson. Here they, they quote something that he writes that he said. Um, he, he proposed substituting in prayers in place of the messianic hope say as follows. I stand here before God. I pray for blessing and prosperity for my compatriots, for myself and my family, not for the return to Jerusalem, not for the restoration of the temple and sacrifices. I do not harbor these wishes in my heart. He also, as it says, proposes that instead of Gomorrah, we should study the laws of the country. You see how that would work? Instead of studying Bob we study, uh, you know, the, the rules of uh, New York state rules on uh, torts.
0: Not so so that, that's hilarious. In the traditional Jewish prayer, you pray that you'll be, Living in Jerusalem once again with your fellow Jews sacrificing it at the temple, right so you'd be intensifying your in-group commitment now, this guy is much more liberal, and he says Jews should not be you know praying together with their fellow Jews in Jerusalem. they should not be spending their time studying Jewish law, they should be studying secular law <laughs> they should study the they should get together I guess in synagogue and instead of studying the Talmud. They should study like california's rules of torts so uh, tort is where you damage someone so like a personal injury
11: so interesting but uh and uh, so that's david friedlander well what do i mean when i say david friedlander is even more extreme than uh, jacobson well they both wanted a reform of the, the siddur the prayer book but uh friedlander wanted to get rid of all of um, hebrew what good is hebrew anymore let's have it in the vernacular in german furthermore friedlander wanted to move the shabbos to sunday and um, there were reform synagogues, including in America, that some really extreme ones that for a time—
0: So Jews in the South, generally speaking, had much better relations with non-Jews than Jews in the North. So there were no rabbis in the South who were opposed to slavery prior to the Civil War. So Jews tended to be highly assimilated. They tended to be Sephardic. They weren't separatist. They often ate pork. They often uh, worshipped on Sunday, just like non-Jews. So Jews in the American South got on really well, generally speaking, with their non-Jewish neighbors, better than Jews in the North who are much more separatist
11: had the s- sabbath on sunday but uh i don't think there was any reform synagogue in the world today correct me if i'm wrong there's so many learned people who listen to me but is there any reform synagogue in the world today that has the sabbath prayer syn- synagogue service on sunday uh maybe but i i don't think so uh but there were some in europe who had it he also he also objected uh to the confirmation ceremony which jacobson had uh and which was taken from the christians because we have a confirmation ceremony that implies that there's a no confession of faith and Friedlander said there is no confession of faith uh uh For him i guess extreme reform you could say was the alternative to conversion but his radical views were never accepted in future generations okay so let me pick up again with jacobson because this is where it starts this is where we start seeing the conflict now with the orthodox because jacobson moves to berlin and he resumes his reformist activities in 1815 his son is confirmed at age 13 at a private home and from that time on every shabbos he held private services and since they were private the community didn't pay them much regard even though technically you were not allowed to private services jacobson gave the sermon the uh, sermon was always the highlight of the Reformed service, and uh, the, it's not just the highlight, it's the uh, it's the most important part, the sermon, uh,
0: I think. So that's like uh, growing up in Seventh-day Adventism, so that's how I grew up. The rock stars in Seventh-day Adventist church were the preachers. The sermon was the, the pinnacle of the religious service. My father did a PhD in rhetoric. He gave a great sermon, and my father was a rock star preacher, and so too in— uh, Reform, conservative Judaism, the, the sermon is the very center of the religious service. Uh, less so in Orthodox Judaism, but it's, be, it's been tilting more and more that way, that uh, people often find the, the sermon the most entertaining. But that's not traditionally how it was. That's a, really a Christian importation. It's really an importation from the Protestants. So as the Protestants with Martin Luther and John Calvin, they developed the sermon. And they honed it to a very fine pitch. And then that then had a profound influence on how Catholics and on how Jews conducted religious services. So you find one denomination, one religion, it gets really good at something like a sermon and all sorts of outgroups such as Catholics and Jews start uh, start imitating you. And that's the way of the world. We're all constantly imitating and adapting from other people. I think that's going to...